that's the opening of Haydn's string quartet, Opus 33, number one, the first of six quartets under the title Opus 33 that he published in 1781. Now, when Haydn was advertising for subscribers to this publication of his, he put in a rather tempting sentence near the top of his copy. He said that they were composed in a new and special way. Now, there have been some people who said that that was probably just a smart bit of PR on his part. But in fact, it is quite true that there is something new about the way that the Opus 33 quartets are written. You can see Haydn's earlier quartets leading up to this in a way, but they do mark a defining point. They are one of those milestones in musical history after which you could say that musical style was never quite the same again. To give an indication of just how new and special Haydn's Opus 33 quartets were, let's take an example of the early classical style, the kind of music that prevailed round about the early to the middle 18th century, the kind of musical milieu in which Haydn was growing up. This, as it happens, is a work that's been attributed to Haydn, although it almost certainly was written by somebody else. It's the quartet that's known as Haydn's Opus 3, number 5. Now, this is a textbook example of early classical style. What was happening around about this time was one of those things which often happens in musical history. When a style had become over-ornate, over-elaborate, over-intricate, there was a kind of reaction against it, a, a drive for a new simplicity. And this was the way the classical style was born. Instead of the ingenious counterpoint, for instance, of the late Baroque style, for example, Johann Sebastian Bach, a new style emphasized melody and simple accompaniment. Now, that's exactly what you get in this slow movement of Haydn's, or not Haydn's, Opus 3, number 5. Here it is, played by the four musicians who are going to be illustrating my points today, the Vian Quartet. So there we are, early classical style, very simple tune and accompaniment, no ambiguity whatsoever about that. Now, here's the opening of a slow movement from the Opus 33 set, the sixth quartet in D major. Now, slow movements are supposedly more melodic, and up to a point, that's what we get in this slow movement. 
But what in this text exactly is melody and what's accompaniment? We started off with what sounded like a tune for the second violin, or maybe second violin and viola, with the violin leader holding one note very quietly. Haydn carefully marks it pianissimo. That's quite specific in this case. It means quieter than all the rest. But then as a crescendo, the leader's sustained note gets louder and louder. And suddenly, about three quarters of the way through that passage, the leader's playing the tune. Where exactly did the handover happen? It's fascinating. It's very difficult to say. And yet there is a moment when the person who was playing the leading line stops playing the leading line and somebody else has it. Now, there's an even more striking example of this at the beginning of the quartet, Opus 33, number 3, which has a nickname, The Bird. For a moment at the beginning, what we hear is just a, a chugging sound, as it were, a simple accompaniment from the viola and the second violin. And then the violin comes in and again holds a note. And then the, the violin's line becomes more precise, more specific. And then gradually the violin's line becomes more and more like a tune and the accompaniment becomes simpler. But then the same process happens all over again. In fact, it happens three times. And each time there's that moment of ambiguity about who it is who's at the top of the texture, who's the real leader, and who it is who's doing the accompaniment. This is the beginning of the quartet, Opus 33, number three. before this quartet develops into a bit of a tussle between the four instruments, as it were, for the ownership of that little figure that the leader plays at the beginning. I'll just ask the leader to play that very first figure of his again so that we can fix it firmly in our minds. When we get to the second theme of this quartet, that tussle begins to intensify. You'll hear that figure at double the speed passing around the instrumental ensemble. When we get later on into the development section of this movement, you could say that the discussion intensifies, that it becomes more like an argument about who it is owns that tune or that motif.
sounds as if, melodically speaking, the leader has won for the moment at the end of that passage. But I think it's pretty clear that that couldn't be much more different from that example of the early classical style I played from the, in inverted commas, Haydn, Opus 3, number 5. In the passage we've just heard, an awful lot of the dynamism and excitement and intricacy of that music comes from the way the ideas are passed around the ensemble from one instrument to another. And that really is like nothing quite in music before Haydn's Opus 33 quartets. But there are many different ways in which the textures of Haydn's quartets are alive and new in this Opus 33 set. For instance, if we take the quartet Opus 33 number 2 in E-flat, which has a nickname, The Joke. He keeps you waiting to the end for the joke that's made it famous, but it is still a pretty spectacular example. This is the theme at the beginning of the finale of Opus 33, number two. There's nothing at all ambiguous about this. It sounds like a clear-cut sort of folk dancey tune with a very clear beginning, middle, and end. That's very neat and very clearly rounded off, a nice eight-bar tune. There's a second section to the tune, which is a bit more exploratory, and you might notice a little bit more interplay between the instruments than there was in that very simple tune and accompaniment. But again, it's rounded off very neatly, as the first section was, and the conclusion is absolutely clear. example of what you'd call a closed form. It's neat, it's complete, it's formally rounded off, you know exactly where the beginning is, exactly where the middle is, and exactly where the end is. That's also very typical of folk music, and it certainly has a very folksy character at this point. Now, one thing that's often been said in the history of writing about music, for instance by the composer Arnold Schoenberg, is that folk music makes pretty bad symphonic material. In other words, it's not ripe for development. If it's closed, you can't expand the form or contract it without doing violence to it. Constant Lambert, another composer, once said, the only thing you can do with a folk tune is repeat it, possibly louder. So. The ending of this movement ought to be pretty well assured. We ought to be pretty clear about Haydn's going to end this movement. Maybe you could emphasize it with a cadential flourish, but only a very simple one. Something like this. Yes, I'm sure we could imagine Haydn doing that if he were a really unimaginative composer, but he isn't. I'd just like to go back in time to an episode I remember of University Challenge. I wonder if anybody else remembers this. It was a few years ago. One of the teams was asked to listen to the end of William Walton's first symphony and to press their buzzer at exactly the moment where the symphony ended. But the end of Haydn's Opus 33, number two, is a lot harder than the end of Walton's first symphony. I'm going to ask the quartet to play the ending of the quartet now. And I want you to imagine that you've got a buzzer in front of you and maybe mentally press it at the point where you think the quartet ends. And we'll see if any of you get it right. <laughs> Thank you. 
right? I'd be surprised if you don't know it. In fact, there's even a question to be asked if what we've actually heard is the ending. It's such a long time before it registers that you can imagine, almost imagine the piece going on silently, in a way, after that ending. It's not a neat ending. In fact, the phrase that Haydn uses to round it off is the very first phrase of the theme, not the closing phrase of it at all. But Haydn was one of the greatest masters of silence in music. I think he knew more than any other composer, perhaps, in all the history of Western music, just how incredibly expressive and structurally, intellectually potent silence could be. Haydn uses silence, in a way, to reinterpret the meaning of the ideas that he uses around it. Now, he plays a similar sort of game, as well, with endings and beginnings in the quartet in G, which is Opus 33, number 5. At the end of Opus 33, number 2, the very last thing we heard was actually the first phrase of the theme. In the beginning of Opus 33, number 5, the very first thing we hear sounds like the last phrase of a theme. So it sounds as though the fifth quartet begins with an ending. But then comes the theme, as is right and proper in a classical sonata form work. Here it is from the very beginning, first of all Haydn's little ending device, and then the theme that follows. So we can tell from the way that that theme develops that it picks up on that ending figure, as I call it, that cadential figure. So it really isn't just an isolated figure on its own. It belongs to the theme, too. It's a, a kind of leading motive that's ripe for development, too. But now the most extraordinary thing happens a little later in the movement, at the end of the development section and the beginning of the recapitulation. That's where Haydn brings back his themes in more or less the order in which they first appeared. There's a dramatic fortissimo, big full texture, but gradually the dynamics subside and the texture thins out, get more and more silence. And then there's a big silence. And the recapitulation begins exactly as the movement itself began. But that little cadential figure, that very figure with which we began, what exactly is its meaning here? Is it the beginning of a new section, or is it the ending of the section that we've just heard? Or is it both? experience of the ending of the joke quartet, opus 33, number two, surely we're prepared. In Haydn, anything that sounds like an ending can't be an ending, can it? There must be some other way that he's going to end this movement than with what sounded like an obvious ending phrase. So this is indeed how Haydn does end the first movement of his quartet, opus 33, number five.
So, what at first sounded like an ending device tacked on mysteriously at the beginning of a quartet turns out, at the end, not to be quite final enough. In other words, Haydn has to repeat it because we've got so used to it in other contexts that it takes a moment or two before we get used to it as an ending. So he repeats it. It's as though he's saying, no, it really is an ending. I really do mean it to be like that. But so far, we've only heard tiny chunks of this movement. And what really matters so much with Haydn's innovations like this is the context, the larger context in which all this takes place. So let's hear the whole of the first movement of the fifth quartet now. We can really relish the wit, the subtlety with which Haydn uses these devices that we've heard. In particular, that little cadence figure that appears at the beginning. Look out for its return. It never means the same thing twice. Thank you. 
Thank you. The first movement of Haydn's quartet in G major, opus 33, number 5, played by the Wiehan Quartet. You're listening to Discovering Music with me, Stephen Johnson, and today I'm looking at the whole of Haydn's opus 33 set of quartets, the quartets which he proudly announced were written in a new and special way. It's time, though, that we had to look at one quartet in particular, and the quartet I've chosen is the first quartet in the series in B minor. Now, it's significant that this should be the first quartet, because composers, when they wrote sets of six quartets, as they often did in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, they were keenly aware of the need to put their best goods right in the shop window. In other words, at the top of the pile, the first quartet. And Haydn's Opus 33, number one, is for many people, certainly for me, the peach of the set. It's a fascinating piece. It's so intricate as well. So much happens in such an extraordinary short space of time. Haydn begins by playing a rather interesting, slightly wicked little trick. I just ask you to listen to this and think, what key does this sound like it's in? Well, that sounds pretty clearly like a phrase in the major key, in D major. In fact, you could follow that example with a nice big chord of D major, and I don't think anyone would be surprised. It would sound quite logical, if unimaginative. That certainly sounds like the right key. But hang on, the title page describes this as a quartet in B minor, and almost immediately Haydn starts toying with, playing with, subverting the expectations that he set up at the very beginning of the quartet. The cello, for instance, gets hold of that very first phrase that the violin played, the first violin, and repeats it obsessively like this. Above that, the other three instruments play harmonies that clash with that. The cello keeps playing A natural, which would sit with the key of D major. The rest of the strings play A sharp, which suggests B minor. 
After that, there's some kind of anxious questioning, as though the strings were asking themselves, what key are we in precisely? Anxious questioning, ambiguous harmonies, even more ambiguous this time from the upper strings. And then finally, a resolution in B minor. At last, a categorical statement of the key we're in. So much drama, so much subtlety going on at the beginning of Haydn's first Opus 33 quartet. And we've only had about 20 seconds of music. We've also only homed in on one dimension of the music, one level on which Haydn is weaving his subtle magic. Let's have a look at another level as we listen to the whole of that opening passage now. Think back to those examples we heard earlier on, where I invited you to consider who's got the tune, who's got the leading line, because on that level too, this opening of Opus 33, number one, is fascinating. Now, because that theme sounded D majorish when we heard it the first time, it's a very simple trick later on in the movement when we come to the point where the second theme would occur, simply to reuse it at its original pitch, but with new harmonies making it absolutely clear that D major is now the home key. So that's what happens. Haydn simply repeats the opening figure, but now with full four-part D major warm harmonies. <laughs> So the exposition ends with no ambiguity at all, a rock-solid D major. But then comes the repeat. This is the passage in a classical sonata form first movement where you go back to the beginning and hear the first two sets of themes again. Now, because we were unsure about what key, what harmony it was that that first theme belonged to when we heard it the first time, it's even more ambiguous. Now we approach it from another key, from D major. So that the tussle between the instruments to decide once and for all which key this piece of music is in becomes even more intense. It's a classic example of how you could say that Haydn never really repeats anything, even when he uses repeat signs, because the meaning that a passage has when you hear it the second time is completely different. <laughs>
The influence of that passage goes on reverberating way beyond the young Mozart, who was so impressed by these quartets. A century later, when Johannes Brahms came to write his clarinet quintet in B minor, he does exactly the same thing as Haydn, by having it start by pretending to be in D major and then only establishing the home key gradually. It's a completely different effect, but one of many examples that shows how Brahms learnt from the example of Haydn. Anyway, I think we're just before we hear the entire quartet, it would be nice if we had a few more, as it were, snapshots of some of the things that happen in the rest of this quartet. In the minuet, for instance, we get an example of how Haydn uses the instruments of his day quite experimentally, rather like Bartok was to do so in the 20th century. One of the effects he has, for instance, is of having repeated notes on the violin, only he has the violinist change and play the notes on two strings side by side and alternate with the bow between the two of them. So what you get as he plays them is a microscopic but nevertheless audible change in tone. This is how it sounds. So just a slight subtle change in color between the two strings there, enough to make it sound as if it's more that's going on there than simply repeating that note. The third movement, which one ought to call the slow movement, except that as Roger Norrington once said, there aren't really such things as slow movements in Haydn. They're often very lively in themselves. This starts with a simple or seemingly simple tune and accompaniment texture. But before long, things start getting more complicated than that, as you'd expect from the composer of this quartet. There's a passage, for instance, where the two top instruments, the two violins, play a simple repeated note accompaniment. And in octaves, the cello and the viola play underneath. Then Haydn simply takes the whole texture and turns it on his head so that the instruments that were playing the accompaniment play the tune and vice versa. It's a complete textural inversion and it creates a pretty striking effect. plenty more textural fun and games in the finale. It starts again, like the slow movement, in what seems like a fairly simple leader plus accompaniment texture. The leader eventually becoming more and more like a concerto soloist. There are all sorts of effects for the first violin at this point. Ingenious effects making use of coloristic properties of the violin. You get more of that oscillating between strings that we heard in the minuet. We get some bird song like twittering noises, which again sound rather like opus 33 number 2, the bird quartet. And at the beginning, the leader is instructed to play all his first theme, all the notes, on one string, on the G string, so that it sounds particularly dark in tone. Thank you. 
really does sound like a concerto with the other three strings playing a simple arrangement of the most basic kind of orchestral accompaniment. The leader seems to reign supreme. But when we get to the development section, Haydn strikes a blow for democracy. After that, the other instruments have much more of a contribution to make to the texture, as you'll hear. It's as though the status quo has been changed irrevocably, and things are never going to be the same again. You'll hear that particularly when we play the entire quartet in a moment or two. Before that, has anybody got any questions? Just to put um, the Haydn Opus 30 in context with Beethoven, when were the Beethoven Opus, Opus 18 quartets composed? Ten years later, something they like that? They were composed a good, oh, nearly 30 years later, to be it's rather surprising. It shows, um, if you listen to the early Opus 18 quartets, having heard the Opus 33 quartets of Haydn, or those six, in inverted commas, Haydn quartets of Mozart, it is fascinating, because then you become much more aware of how Beethoven's later style emerged from that kind of background. Sometimes he's still, as it were, in the drawing room with a group of amateur musicians, or good amateur musicians, making music in the classical style with Haydn. And other times it's as though Napoleon has suddenly burst into the drawing room and something grander and more ambitious has taken place. But it's still recreating that idea of dialogue within the quartet. But it, it is, it is fascinating that, that, that a good 30 years had passed between that quartet and the quartets of Beethoven, the Opus 18, his first set of string quartets. It does show how far ahead of his time Haydn was. I don't know if you know that on one occasion somebody asked Haydn why it was that he'd become such an original and innovative composer. He said, well, there I was cut off in the Hungarian countryside for the best part of my life. I had no choice but to become original because I didn't know what anybody else was doing. Um, that's one explanation, certainly. I think it's uh, not entirely adequate, though, to explain the subtleties and intricacies of that music we've just heard. Gentlemen over here. I was just wondering about the, the technical demands that this new music placed on the performers of the time, uh, particularly reading about every time Beethoven produced a new piece, performers would uh, profusely object to it and, and say they couldn't play it. That's a very interesting question, because playing the music of this period on what are now called period instruments, has been very revealing. Um, there's a very fine recording of these quartets, for instance, by uh, a period instrument quartet called the Mosaic Quartet. And you can hear in some of the passages, because the instruments speak so quickly, and they don't have that sort of resonance of the modern instruments, that they're capable of getting very minute details across much more quickly. For instance, that little effect that the leader played, where he's oscillating between two strings playing repeated notes, if you hear that on an instrument of Haydn's day, the contrasting color between the two strings is even more pronounced than it is on the modern instrument, where there's a kind of evening out of sound across the instrument. So that's one occasion where certainly the instrument of his day has more to tell us than our instruments do now. Anybody else? A question over here. Um, you cast these quartets in as being very uh, mold-breaking, hmm. and historically speaking, critics don't look very kindly on very adventurous, very uh, harmonically difficult music. Um, do we know anything about the critical reception that these six quartets received? We know a little, and the answer is that 
Of course, the quartets were always intended for a kind of connoisseur audience. So to some extent, they were prepared. And there are composers before Haydn, like, for instance, C.P.E. Bach, Bach's son, Carl Philipp Emanuel, who had uh, some very quirky and adventurous touches to their style. What I think makes Haydn most remarkable is not just that he includes all these extraordinary effects, that he pushes the envelope, as you might say, introduces new things, is the fact that he integrates it into something which sounds so complete. You know, you, I don't think any of us listening to that music would describe it as, as purely quirky or just eccentric. At the same time as he's introducing all these extraordinary mold-breaking effects, there's a logic to it. It all makes a sense, to, certainly does to me, listening to that quartet. It's a remarkably well-argued and concentrated piece of music at the same time as it's doing things which are, for the time, dazzlingly new. But certainly Haydn doesn't seem to have attracted the kind of opprobrium the problem that you'd expect, maybe, for a composer of his daringness. He was very popular with the critics, certainly by the end of his life. And when he was invited to London, for instance, for where his 12 London symphonies were written for London audiences, they were received ecstatically by the critics. They really were, and praised for all the things that were most new. He was, I think, officially, by the end of his life, the greatest composer of his day, certainly the greatest composer of instrumental music, which uh, was a situation that he, he enjoyed and knew how to make the most of. So now, let's hear the first of Haydn's Opus 33 quartets, the B minor, the first of those quartets which he insisted were written in a new and special way, and which we've heard is nothing less than the truth. Bear in mind what we've heard in the course of this program, and listen hard for the interplay between the four instruments. I'm sure you'll agree it sharpens one appreciation of the incredible ingenuity and subtlety of this music. So here is Haydn's first Opus 33 quartet, played by the four members of the Vihan Quartet. Leos Czepitsky and Jan Schulmeister, violins, Jigit Zygmunt, viola, and Alex Katzpik, cello. <laughs> 